Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry, where we get to talk to people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. And today, my guest is a colleague of mine, Dr. Gary Holman from down at Lincoln University here in Jeff City, Missouri. So, Gary, good to see you. Uh, how are things going at uh, Lincoln University? Well, things are going pretty well. I was actually surprised we made it through the, sem- you know, the semester. We had planned to stop uh, at Thanksgiving and then do remote learning for the last two weeks plus finals. Uh, I guess it was a good thing we did because I know MU ended up uh, basically doing the same thing, although they hadn't planned it. At the beginning of the semester, I, I didn't think there's any way we would make it all the way through, but somehow we did. And I haven't contracted COVID yet. And so we're all doing all right. <laughs> and so you were in a classroom with maybe what, 20 to 30 students uh, all wearing masks? And uh... they kept the number smaller. It was, it was a little bit of a rough semester in some ways, because uh, instead of having a big Psychology 101 class, for example, they would split that into two smaller ones. And so um, I had to do five hours of lecture in a row, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So it was, so there were more classes with few students. Mm-hmm. So the same thing several times right, <laughs> is the way right. it worked. Repetition. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you have a PhD in psychology, and I believe your master's was health psychology. In some ways, I, I have a particularly fond connection with you because I taught health and you're really kind of a health teacher as well. But can you tell us what health psychology means to you? Well, health psychology, uh, I I kind of stumbled into it, to be quite honest. Back in the day, this was early to mid-1990s, and uh, there was no such a thing as positive psychology in those days. So I was kind of country before country was cool um, in the sense that um, I, I was interested in what would now kind of be called positive psychology, but there wasn't such a thing because it wasn't until uh, I got my master's in 1994 and it wasn't until 1998 that Seligman started that positive psychology movement. I knew I was interested in you know, how people can, can uh, be more, I guess I could call it wellness now is what, what you would call it. So the best program I could find or the closest was one in health psychology. So it kind of tied most of the things that I wanted, how to kind of be a better person. And it, and I wasn't necessarily specifically with physical health, but certainly that was an aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a health psychology program and I thought it was interesting. And so that's what I did. Is that the um, one in Arizona? Yeah, that was Northern Arizona University in, in Flagstaff. And I always picked my graduate schools by really neat places to live. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Grand Canyon-ish. Well, cool. Where did you grow up, though? Is that was that odd for you to be out west? Yeah, I I, I grew uh, born and raised in Columbus, Indiana, uh, um, South Central Indiana, and then um, I went to Purdue for my undergraduate, which is in Indiana, also for those who don't know. Purdue's a lot like MU in the sense that it's it's a, it's a school about thirty five thousand students, at least was at the time, and uh, so it's a big state school. And so I I got my degree assembled into psychology. I started as an engineering major. Um, because my math scores were really high. And they said, hey, we'll give you a scholarship. You should be an engineer. And I said, okay. Kind of like Forrest Gump, you know, joining the, <laughs> the let's do this. Okay. Um, so, but I got into that. And, and uh, just because you're good at something doesn't mean that it speaks to you. And so 
I, I quickly ended up getting into psychology. Um, it was within my, f- and by the end of my first semester. Oh, wow. um, so then, and I, and I figured out why, I, the way I picked my major was my best buddy, he and I would go to bookstores and spend hours browsing. And uh, he would always go to the business section and browse there. So we know what he was interested in. I wasn't going to an engineering section. I was going to, <laughs> I was going to the psychology section. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of got me thinking, well, I should do something I'm interested in. And, what a great uh, idea for, for people to do is to just browse bookstores and, or libraries and see what kind of books they're drawn to. What a great yeah, idea. Yeah, for a student who's trying to figure out you know, where you want to go to college and what you want to do in college, it's probably not a bad idea Yeah, to, yeah. to go about it that way. Uh, health psychology, has it been uh, profitable for you in a way of you went on to get a PhD and I don't know, research? Do you do research? Yes. I'll give you a kind of a long answer to this. I guess we have about an hour, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was in there at Arizona, um, Northern Arizona, and got my master's in health psychology. And, and I was, when I, when I graduated, I was promised a job um, with one of the HMOs doing health promotion which would have been perfect. Um, they said they didn't know whether they wanted me in Phoenix or Sacramento. And I said, I don't care, just whichever one, you figure that out. So they said it'd be a couple of weeks or so before they figured out where they wanted me. Make a long story short, they never were going to call me because they decided they didn't have that job after all. So hmm. I was, uh, you know, had my master's degree and had moved my stuff back to my parents' house in Columbus, Indiana. And they're still there, by the way. And, uh, you know, master's degree, no job. And then they I just told the job was promised wasn't there. So <laughs> I ended up going into a, a doctoral program in clinical psychology at the University of Montana, another beautiful place, by the way. And once again, I went into clinical psychology because it was the hardest to get into. And it was supposed to be, it gave me the most doors to, that were you know open when I was finished, but it wasn't my thing either. And, uh, mm. and so I ended up you know, dropping out of that. One thing in Montana that I did was I met my, met my wife. So that was a, at least I got, you know, good thing out of that there. Right. So I, I met my, um, I guess, future wife at the time. And at that time I, I would follow her around because she was in, uh, she was in journalism and broadcast journalism. So that business is one, people think these, these people on TV are so glamorous and they make all this money, but that's, that's not the way it really is. University of Montana and University of Missouri are two top broadcast journalism programs in the country, really. So Heather got her degree there. And then she had to fight for a, you know, $15,000 a year job, <laughs> which trust me, wasn't a lot then either. <laughs> and, uh, and you had to work your way up. You had to work a couple of years and then you work up to a little bigger market, a little bit, you know, bigger money. And uh, so her first job, she was in Rapid City, South Dakota. And I was willing to follow her around because things weren't, you know, didn't work out for me terribly well at the time. So I was pretty versatile and I was able with my you know, master's in health psychology and all that, I was able to uh, get in the ground floor of this wellness program for teenage girls. And it was through the Department of Corrections. Prior to that, they had a, a, a boys boot camp they were very proud of. And they have the people in the Smokey the Bear hats and drill sergeant yelling at these boys and, and all that stuff and straighten up and fly right. And they thought they'd try this with the girls. Well, I'll make a long story short on that one. They, they killed a girl because they were marching her out and marching them out in the hot sun. 
And this girl was complaining, said, I, you know, it's, it's, I can't take it. I can't take it. Oh, quit complaining. And she fell down and died on him. Governor shut the program down <laughs> and, uh, um, and they decided, well, let's try a new approach. Let's try a wellness model for the girls. So they didn't learn that the boys boot camp wasn't good. They just learned that, well, we won't do this for girls. So they started this new wellness program, which conceptually was right along my lines. And I just happened to be looking for work there when my wife got a job in, you know, in Rapid City, South Dakota. So I ended up working, uh, um, getting on the ground for this wellness program. And the idea was let's teach positive skills to these girls rather than trying to, I don't know, beat out the bad things from them. So I, that's where I ended up, you know, working for two years before I went back to get my doctorate um, at that point. So don't know where we were going with that, but, uh, but that's taken us into some, um, some interesting area here, I guess. Well, that's, that was some research that you started into because you actually developed a research program there, didn't you? Right. With my expertise in, uh, with fitness and wellness, I also on my own had been certified by the American College of Sports Medicine as an exercise physiologist since 1994, which is when I got out of that master's program. And uh, thankfully I was getting certifications while I was waiting for that job that never, that never, that they turned me down on. But so with my expertise in fitness and exercise, and I set up the, the fitness program and uh, we were in a camp setting basically in Custer state park, which is uh, by Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Uh, in the Black Hills. It's beautiful out there. Uh, and I'll be honest, it's the best job I've had at this time. It didn't pay the most, but boy, was it fun going to work every day, <laughs> you know, to be out in the, in the woods. And I had these girls for a two to three hour period every day of doing exercise and fitness. So I set up a testing protocol. Each girl will get tested on 10 different things, everything from your flexibility to your strength, endurance, we had them, we did a timed mile with them every, uh, once a month. And, uh, so, and I tracked it all and even created norms for it later on. And, uh, and so anyway, we've had these girls working, they would, you know, two hours of exercise plus a day. And then when they left, they were all that their I think their average mile time went from 12 minutes down to eight minutes. For example, their, um, you know, their, everything was, their flexibility was much improved. Their, Everything was incredible. They're a lot stronger, and uh, but they gained weight, <laughs> and and it wasn't muscle weight. They were they were, you know, they were, I'm sure they gained some muscle, but they were gaining fat weight. So what the research paper and project ended up being was uh, a, a reporting on look, this is these girls have gotten more than any guidelines for exercise by the American College of Sports Medicine or anybody else. You know, a couple hours of exercise a day is a lot. Mm-hmm. And yet they were gaining weight and fat. And the only explanation could be the diet was undermining their fantastic levels of physical fitness and, and ability and, and improvements. So anyway, that's essentially the paper I wrote up was, look, we've got, I can show you strength, flexibility, endurance, their time mile, their you know, agility, all these type of things are improved beyond any expectations. And yet they were gaining body fat. Mm-hmm. And so... I actually took a, while I was there, before I you wrote this up as a paper, another guy who I worked with, another guy who was kind of a, a wellness, uh, well, it was a wellness program, but he was a certified fitness professional as well. He and I took this, this information and we looked at the diet that they had 
and we made, I believe, 10 suggestions. Uh, it was 10 or 12, but let's say we made 10 suggestions that wouldn't cost them any more to improve the diet, their institutional diet. We said, these are 10 suggestions you can do to improve these girls' diets without costing you any more money. And I know uh, I can remember a few of them. One was turn off the fryer <laughs> and eat something else. So you know, it's real easy to just fry everything and give it to them. And of course, that's not healthy. And then the one they actually did of all of, the, all of those was to get skim milk rather than the, uh, than the whole milk that they were giving them. And uh, so they did do that one thing. But uh, all the rest of them, you know, they, no, no, we're not going to do it, not going to do it. And, well, it doesn't cost you any more. Still not going to do it. And uh, so uh, that was interesting, interesting, you know, case of frustration, but it was pretty, it was pretty damning of the diet, I should say, you know, that there, there's no other explanation. They had to eat that food and there was no other way yeah. for them to, for the gain that weight. So yeah, that was what the project was. Oh, in a situation like that, you may have uh, wanted also to make some kind of an impact on the girls in terms of behavior change, but you probably didn't have any follow-up opportunity to see if that happened in their lives. Their improved behaviors, if it actually yeah. stuck. Well, yeah, I don't know because I have no way to track them. You know, yeah. but, you know once they go, I mean, we're not even, you know, you can't even show a picture of them because they're prisoners technically, right? It's Department of Corrections. Yeah, sure. And they're teenagers, so they've got all that confidentiality. So yeah, we didn't get much follow-up. But I'd like to think that certainly it, 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 it at least did no harm. And I think it did some good. When we started the program, the philosophy of it was, well, about half of us who started working there came from that boys boot camp. So they came from what I call a corrections mentality. Mm-hmm. And the other half of us were like myself, kind of from a psychology background. Mm-hmm. And those of us from that background, we tried to put in some more of the wellness type ideas. And, and I'll give one example. They're there about six months. And the problem with the boys' boot camp, as much as it's nice for those parents to come and see their young man straightened up and marching, you know, nicely and all that, the recidivism was horrendous. I mean, once they leave the program, you know, they're they're back to their old ways. Well, it shouldn't be surprising given that it's actually in some ways kind of comforting for a lot of these guys to uh, you know, from the boys' boot camp to go there because you're told when to wake up. You're told what to eat. You're told when to go to bed. And all you got to do is, and I think of Forrest Gump once again, you know, you're going to be a general Gump. Well, if you can just listen to directions, you don't have to think. And the problem is when they get out of that program and yeah, they've straightened up and they've gotten cleaned up and they're not smoking, they're not doing drugs and they're, and they're they go home and nobody's going to wake them up in the morning mm-hmm. and nobody's going to do this. And so one of the things I did for the girls wellness was set up so that one of the girls who'd been, you know, who's a short timer getting ready to be out um, would be in charge of the alarm clock, a little, little clock radio to wake everybody up in the morning. Hmm. So it was little things like that to teach them skills that they would need later rather than just to make them appear to be doing well at the time. Like every Saturday morning I would have a, and I, they thought I was, Weird, I'm sure sometimes, but uh, I mean, the, the kids did. We had about 24 girls at a time there. And I would do on Saturday mornings a kind of a little wellness hour or however long it was. For example, I would teach ballroom dance, you know, on, on one Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. So I'd teach them how to do the, you know, the, the, the basic box step in the waltz, for example. And, yeah. and then 
turn on some waltz music and try to to get that down okay we know the waltz now you know so um so it was just teaching them useful skills you know and they and we would take the girls into the kitchen to learn how to make rice krispie treats or something you know things skills that they could apply later on and, and so i i'd like to think because of that philosophy being a wellness program and not just a corrections i don't know what you're punishing and and stopping this well you're stopping it what are you teaching them to do mm-hmm. and so so we we did teach them you know how to how to stay fit as far as the exercise and and we got them more fit so they would feel good about exercising and we taught them how to do things like ballroom dancing and how to you know how to dance if you go to a wedding or you know and and how to how to make a rice krispie treat and get yourself up in the morning so i'd like to think it was useful in that way i can't think it i i, I can't imagine it could have hurt so yeah, yeah. well and it's it's interesting that as your life uh, moved along you now have two girls <laughs> yeah <laughs> and if i heard right they're almost like prisoners in the house right now up yes. doing their classroom zooming uh, is that kind of how do you yeah so um so i have one my daughter who's a freshman in high school straight above me right now in her bedroom uh doing classes behind me upstairs in the other kid's bedroom the other one's doing um, she's in the uh, seventh grade. She's doing her classes up there. My wife is this direction, <laughs> uh, also down in the basement where I am, um, and the other side of the basement. She teaches kindergarten uh, online. So all four of us are in here on Zoom and doing teaching online right at this time. So it's been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in terms of uh, your kind of, I think you have a passion for behavior change, uh, how that can be best uh, worked out. And in our country today, it, it seems like behavior change is, is taking on a, a whole different kind of force because we have groups that seem to change behavior and groups that don't. And, and do you have any thoughts about that? I'm not quite sure if you can rephrase the question because I'm a little. Um, um, well, mask wearing in particular. Okay. There's, there are people that are changing their health behavior and wearing masks. There's people that are saying, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. How does a health that, psychologist approach a, a situation like that? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's we are in interesting times right now. A hundred years ago, when we had the uh, you know the the Spanish flu or the flu epidemic or pandemic, I should say, that killed up as many as a hundred million people in the world. In the United States, they had a similar thing with the whole wearing of masks and <laughs> precautions, which is really interesting and strange. I mean, we think. I mean, I know we're in a politically charged time right now, and unfortunately, it's taken on political connotations, but. Um, this is nothing new for this country in the, in, in the sense that we had this whole mask versus not mask thing a hundred years ago with the la- last humongous pa- pandemic we had. But to get back to, you know, to right now, if I would just look at it from looking at this particular situation now, why is it that some people will listen to public health advice and why others won't? For whatever reason, I think listening to experts has been degraded at this time. And I, and I, I guess another, put another way, people don't want necessarily to follow science these days. And so, which is unfortunate because we need to have experts. We need to have somebody who knows what we need to do. 
And the fact that we're questioning that, and I really think this questioning of the experts and not trusting science, it goes, you know, we could blame it on the last four years, but I think it goes, it goes back further than that. It goes back to the way our media is now. And and I don't mean like the news media. I mean, the fact that we're on a Zoom call right now, when the internet started, we had emails and that was, that was a big deal. And then it, and then it kind of got shortened to texts. And then, and then, you know, so we have tweets and texts. So I think tweets are even shorter than texts typically now, right? And, and so um, we've gone from having Newsweek, which would be a, you know, a, a magazine on paper <laughs> that you could, and they would have 15 page articles on a topic. And now you've got two lines of a blurb to get your point across. You know, you can say, uh, masks bad is about as much as we get now. And what we lose in that, in this, in this short attention span society, I think, is the nuance. We lose the nuance and scientists like myself can't give the facts without the nuance, right? You can't say masks, good, bad. You say, well, this is what you get. It's more, there are more details. And so when you have to put everything out in a text or a tweet, you just can't get the details out. And it appears that it's just one opinion versus another. Um, but unfortunately, I don't know if it's unfortunately, but the, the reality is that some opinions are better than others. So an expert who has a PhD in some area, um, you've got, you know, let's say Dr. Fauci, who's been doing this and, you know, for many, many years, he has some expertise and he is not, doesn't, his, his opinion shouldn't carry the same weight as someone who just had a rant on, a, on their Twitter feed. <laughs> or whatever, right? I mean, you have an expert who studied this for years, became a medical doctor and became an expert in public health versus somebody who just has their opinion. So it's, it's more than just the political climate now. I think it's the way our, the information is shared in our world right now. Well, I'm gonna challenge you to go a little deeper than that. Okay. Because we're all, in a sense, hearing the same arguments, but some are open already to receiving this message and others are already open to receiving that message as if there's something in our going back further in our earlier years, our I don't know if it has to do with our religions or our just home upbringing or, or some kind of a cultural thing. Do you have any clues that go back that far? Yeah, you know, I, I think since I'm married to a journalist by her first career, right, and she's, she's a teacher now, um, but she was uh, you know, in broadcast journalism. So being around her, and when she started in the news business, I think she was one of the, I think one of the last cohorts getting her education and coming through news journalism school and into the newsrooms where they really had this separation between the news and then the uh, and the advertising and those things so when she got into her first tv station um the one where she was getting you know fourteen thousand dollars a year i think <laughs> it was in south dakota one thing that they really did well there was they kept the newsroom and the advertising room separate the advertisers are not allowed to even go into the newsroom. And so, you know, the car dealer might, for example, 
what they want to have some some event you know oh we're having a big sale this weekend we're having a big celebration and they would try to get you to do a news story on that and the newsroom would say that's not news if you want to pay for an ad you can promote your you know you can right. promote your big car sale later on in her journalism career she started to see that eroded where the advertisers started to make their way into the newsroom. And at the same time, this is when news companies started to push certain political viewpoints. And, and, and I, you know, to pick them, but this is but the reality is Fox News was the first to do that. They weren't a news outlet to begin with. They were the one among the first to politicize the news. And then, uh, then now you've got now you've got everybody has their viewpoint, you know, their partisan um, news. So when you watch news, it's it, it you know, if you're more conservative, you're going to watch Fox. If you're more liberal leaning, you're going to watch MSNBC or you know, and, and every news outlet has this kind of everybody knows kind of where they are as far as their political leanings, and it didn't used to be that way. Um, you know, they used to have a separation there that, you know, no, that, you know, the news is news. And so anyway, the, the one, I think another big point on that is that my wife was taught to do a story. She's always taught to show both sides of the story. Now, I understand the spirit of that. The problem is when you present global warming versus not, it's not happening, and you can, and you have, you know, 98% of scientists say, yes, we have clear evidence of this. And then you have one or two scientists you know, who say no, and you find that one. The trying to have a balanced perspective, it tends to come out as these people believe this and these people don't. But the reality is, is 98% is this and 2% is this. It shouldn't be presented as an equal argument. So yes, we need to give both sides of the story, but we need to give higher weight. It's like, well, you know, you've got Dr. Fauci who has, a, has had a career in this, in public health. He's a medical doctor and he's, and this is what he does. Um, his, his opinion should weigh more than somebody who's throwing in their comment, you know, at the bottom of a news article. And so that's something that we've got to get sorted out. So seeing where that comes from, there are things we can do to correct that, I think. You know, we can say, look, here's the two viewpoints but it should be known that 98% of people believe, you know, and the scientists believe this viewpoint versus this one. So, mm -hmm. so that, I guess that kind of ties into where my, you know, valuing the, the science and going with the data on things. Yeah. So uh, let me just pursue this in, in a, a way that may take us nowhere, actually. Sure. <laughs> but if you did an interview with people that are looking at Dr. Fauci through one lens of mm -hmm. expert, and then you talk to a group of people that have known him through the last 40 years, and they comment on things that see him actually through a different lens, although they understand he's still called the expert, and they come away with different ways of listening, even to Dr. Fauci. So that's another problem. <laughs> we all definitely, yeah, we hear what we're prepared to hear for sure. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that ideally that's one of the things that, that college is for is to learn how to think differently. 
you know, and uh, I, I teach a class. Um, it's our first majors class in psychology for the people who decide to be a psychology major. It's called Psychology 102. One of the big points of that class is it's how to think straight about psychology. I used to have a book entitled that that I use for a textbook in it. But the idea on that is, you know, look at how you're thinking about things and look at why is it that we should um, believe you know, what makes good evidence, I guess, would be, you know, what makes this scientific, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, and why should we trust this viewpoint more than others? So that's an educational issue that, that we certainly could uh, push more in our, our colleges and universities, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it's that everybody talks about critical thinking being this big thing we need to teach our students. But that's one of the big elements of critical thinking is realizing that we all are viewing it through our own lens. Yeah. And everybody's going to hear that same information differently. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, there, there are the studies where they find out if people are pro or against capital punishment, for example, mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll give them two articles. One is for one, you know, pro and one is, is against the people who are already pro they believe the one that was the, the pro argument and the people who are already against it, they believe they are. And they, and they believe that one was better evidence. And so we all have these fundamental flaws in our reasoning. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, I guess, purposes of science and maybe is maybe hopefully for college, you know, that critical thinking idea is understanding that we are thinking through a filter and we see things differently than everybody else. And so, for me, that's what science does. Science says, these are the numbers and you've got to take those numbers and what do they tell you, <laughs> right? And whether I want to believe it or not. And in fact, what the scientific method, the biggest thing the scientific method is supposed to do is to keep us from fooling ourselves. Every researcher goes into a project hoping it comes out one particular way, right? And that's why we have blinded and double blind procedures so that we get the information. And then when that data comes back, if it comes out this way, well, that supports my idea, but it comes out this way, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And one thing I see from a lot of my, from my students and, and, and they think I'm being a smart aleck, I think when I put this on their papers, well, two, a couple things I do. One is whenever I see them put the word prove, so they'll read an, you know, they'll read an article and they'll say, well, this, you know, does this support this? Well, this proves that blah, blah, blah. And then I, and I put a little, you know, frowny face uh, whenever they put the word prove, what'd you put that for? Well, in science, we don't, we seldom prove things, right? The only thing we can prove is that we were wrong really in science. I mean, right. If you have a hypothesis and if it comes out one way, it supports your hypothesis or, and your theory, perhaps if it comes out the other way, you were wrong. (laughs) And so you can definitely be wrong, but we, even when you're right, you can't be 100% sure you're all the way right. And that's what the general public doesn't understand about science is, is that, well, why do these scientists, why do they hem-haw around and they don't give a, yes, you should do this, no, you shouldn't. It's like, well, it's because we don't have the final answer, right? I mean, when we do a study, we can say, I was either wrong or it supports my idea, it doesn't prove it. And so, so that's, I guess that's a, you know, a big thing. And so I think all of us need to recognize our flaws in our reasoning and the more, the more we can be versed in science and what is good evidence, I guess the better in my viewpoint. I sometimes bring up a, a favorite scene from a movie uh, on this show. You may have 
gotten to see Contact, was it uh, called Contact with Jodie Foster and Michael McConaughey? And she was this daughter of a scientist and she was a scientist and, and uh, he was the minister. And uh, she's not gonna believe anything that you can't prove. And there's that word prove, right? With evidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he says something like, uh, do you love your father? And she says, well, yes. He said, well, prove it. And she, of course, is unable to do anything but repeat, well, of course, I love my father. And so we had that moment where we have uh, science having a certain lens to look through. And then uh, maybe we'll call it the uh, spiritual realm or the, the faith realm or you know, other kinds of beliefs, looking at things through a different lens. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I heard you say one time that sometimes those two can actually come to the same conclusion if allowed. I, I, let me just give an example before you say something. Uh, in my classroom, for my basic class, I would put on the board creation, evolution. And we'd have a little, uh, not debate, we'd just have, okay, well, where does the creation get their information? Oh, the Bible, okay. And where does science get it? Oh, from the, the scientific method, okay, observation. And so uh, what's, the, uh, what's the series of life forms that were created uh, in Genesis uh, where it talks about the different things that came along. And well, there was first this and the, the next that and next that and next that. Oh, well, you're, you're getting that from the Bible, are you? Well, what would science say? Would they, would they change the order there? Uh, well, actually, no, uh, that had to be before this and then, then, had, then that and then, oh, then well, well, the same order, aren't they? So what's the argument here? <laughs> you know, what, why are we fighting between these two things? Because they were asking two different questions. Creation was just saying, who did it? And they got their answer in chapter one, verse one of the Bible. <laughs> the scientists were saying, how did this happen? Very different question. So maybe it's the questions that we're asking that are different that make us think that we're in opposition. How does that work with you? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I'll give it I think I'm going in the right direction. You know, there's a psychology example. Therapy in the in in we'll say the olden days, for the most part, um, doesn't work this way anymore. But the old, you know, Sigmund Freud and the Freudian idea that you're basically that your your personality develops by about the time you're age five. And if you have issues now, or you have a let's say you smoke and you want to you want to quit smoking, for the old Freudian style of therapy, you would have to go and figure out why you started to smoke to begin with. And they would have some really bizarre ideas, which I don't want to get into at this, but, but, um, but the idea was you had to go back and uncover why you started to smoke to begin with and then learn. And then you get insight into this, why you smoked. And then if you, once you get the insight and understand why you started to smoke, then somehow that frees you. And then you can move on and get past that fixation. And, and then you can 
you know, then your therapy, then you can quit smoking and you can change your behavior. Behaviorists come along and say, well, what's your problem? Your problem is you smoke. You need to quit smoking. I don't care why you started smoking is what, <laughs> you know, what, you know, uh, you know, died in the wool behaviorists would say, right? I don't care why you started smoking. We, what you want to do is quit smoking. What we need to know is what's making you smoke right now, right? And so in some ways, I mean, other than the fact that, that the Freudian type of therapy took many, many, it might take years to get to this insight. Bottom line is, and there are therapies that are based on this kind of insight therapy um, that are very popular now. Um, they don't take as long because insurance will only pay for maybe 12 sessions or whatever, but, but, what, but they'll get down to business and say, okay, well, you, we, you get some insight. And what they've, they've done research and found that it doesn't matter what your belief is on the inside of why you did that, you know, why you smoked, started smoking to begin with. If you buy that explanation, it works. In other words, if you're if 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 that explanation is satisfying to you, then you kind of do move on, and then you can get to the business of okay, now we got to quit, right? And so, whether you know whether you know when you go to the the creation story versus you know, versus evolution and how and the details of how that went out, what does that matter for our behavior and what we do right now? I mean, the fact is that whether you know whether our earth has just become the way it is and it's and it's fragile because of you know because the way evolution has come along and we and we, and we need to be careful because there's nobody stopping us from killing ourselves or if you know we go more a biblical approach and we need to be the stewards of our earth because of that responsibility to god does it matter because you both want to do the same thing we need to protect the earth for example right so i i guess in some ways I don't, yeah, I don't like the question of going and saying, arguing is evolution versus, you know, creation. I don't think they're mutually inconsistent to begin with, you know, and, uh, and I think, why are we asking the question? If, if having that insight or that, if that belief helps you to, to kind of root your uh, viewpoint of the world in a productive way, then more power to you. Right. So here's a, here's one way it does impact uh, who's in control. If your faith says that God is in control, then all of the things that happen are part of the plan. God's in control. Just trust and let it happen. Versus, well, we're in control by our behaviors and our choices that we make. So we need to make better choices to to bring about uh, the conclusion. So there are some in that mm, separation uh, there's a lot of behaviors that could be different yeah it's really hard although they don't have to be different i guess my comment is uh an old saying trust in god but tie your camel and uh you know the you know uh, the metaphor behind that obviously is that yeah we if you, you you can trust god but you still got to, you know, another, another similar, another similar, similar phrase saying like that is, uh, you know, God gives you the ingredients, but you still have to do the baking, right? You're not just going to have bread. You got to, you know, you got to make the bread yourself. And, and so you can come to similar agreement on, yes, we need to take care of our world. What if things are determined, you know, um, predetermined or what have you, we don't know that number one. And, and it gets into kind of weird philosophical, you know, 
discussions that I, I, I frankly lose patience with because the fact is what we do impacts our world. And um, you can go to other parts of the Bible. We are the stewards of our, you know, we, of our, of our world. We are, uh, you know, Adam is supposed to take care of the garden of Eden. Right. And so um, we do have a responsibility for our, you know, for our earth. Um, So either way you look at it, we do have that responsibility. So I think we could, you know, whatever your viewpoint is on the origins, you know, doesn't matter why you smoke. It just matters what you're doing right now. And if it's helpful for you to have a story, you know, of this viewpoint on, on the, well, it came, we have evolution did this, or, if it, or, if, you know, or have the creation story. If those are helpful for you, I don't really care. So long as you're going to help me to protect the earth that we have now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There are tough issues and uh, we, each of us do our best to create an environment for learning, um, which I, I just learned the other day that uh, in the Bible, back in Hebrew, the word for the Torah, T-O-R-A-H, was also translated learning. And uh, the rabbi that was speaking said, you learning doesn't come just by reading or conversation the learning comes by actually having a personal experience of the event Uh, so we can hear the words and hear the words and hear the words but when uh, i I would translate it when you get the revelation or you experience (laughs) the aha then that is a turning point for you or certainly could be. Mm-hmm. So I, I was just picking up on the word learning and, you know, sort of connecting it to a, a guy that was talking about the Bible. And uh, it's our challenge as teachers is to have just enough information and an environment that hopefully there will be a few aha moments for those students. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I, I was recall a, a video I show in some of my classes um, the guy's name is Scott Gallery is a pretty popular uh, TED talk, and uh, uh, he's a behavioral psychologist, and uh, he talks about the difference between learning and training. And uh, you know, learning has kind of gotten this sort of a passive sort of a feel to it in many ways, right? You, a lot of students expect to go into class and they sit there and they learn. And, I, and, and when I teach the learning chapter in psychology, what is what do you think when you think of learning? And for most of the students, they think, well, I stare at a book and then something goes into my head and I know something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, behavioral psychologists would say, well, learning is a change in behavior due to your experience. There That's you the definition of learning. Mm-hmm. And so even if that behavior is only known by you put in different bubbles on your test, <laughs> your behavior is changed by your experience. Mm-hmm. And he talks about there's a difference between between um, learning and training, right? With online learning versus online training, for example. Well, um, learning, um, you just kind of absorb this information, I guess, right? Um, at least by the, you know, the average person's idea. But training, you do that behavior and then you get feedback on it. And you can really get the difference between the two when you think about, um, sorry, not learning, so education, sorry, versus training. Um, do you want online, do you want sex education or do you want sex training? 
Now, <laughs> kids and the parents might have a different idea, but but it highlights the difference between just education, gathering knowledge, and being able to apply it, right? Mm-hmm. You go through school and you're, you're supposed to get this education, and then you get on your job, and then you have to get trained to do your job. Mm-hmm. But we need more training, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? We need we need to be able to do the thing and then get the feedback on it in order for us to, to make, to make improvements. And uh, so that, and that's a trick and, you know, you've been an educator, your, you know, most of your life and, and uh, um, to try to engage the students, that's one of the big buzzwords they use nowadays, right? To engage them. It really comes down to, they need to, they need to do some behavior, get feedback on their being right or wrong. And uh, one thing I've done this semester since I've been forced to put things online, right? Um, and I don't know, maybe it kind of makes me think of um, B.F. Skinner hit his learning machines. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Um, people criticized him for, oh, you're making it like, you know, these children are. But really, his idea is really come, makes a lot of sense now in our computer age um, because, um in order to really learn something well, you need to get that feedback in order to improve. Staring at a book does you very little good, right? But if you stare at a book and then you get a test on it and then you get this wrong, then you go stare at the book again and you check and you see <laughs> if you get it right, there's a big difference. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so, uh, you know, so what I've done in my, in my classes to kind of make me feel better about online because how do you keep people from cheating? How do you do these type of things? I have them take the test and I make it a little shorter test, but I have them take the test and they have to get hundred percent on it. They can take as many times as they like and they have to get hundred percent on it five times in order to, to get all their points for the test. Oh. And so if you get 98%, well, too bad. you got a zero. Mm-hmm. You have to go and then oh correct your error, go back and take it again. So at the very least, you know, you can put down what those correct answers are, mm-hmm. right? And so, so I mean, I think them, that's. What, do you tell them what they got wrong? Um, most of the time, no. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the reason is because that forces them to either go into the book and find it, mm-hmm. right? Um, now most of them are multiple choice, so you go through it four times, you're going to figure out, <laughs> hopefully figure out the right answer. Um, but I do all at the very end, I'll put in two or three where they're just to fill in the blank and you have to type in the word or what have you. Mm-hmm. And those, they got to go in and find them. Otherwise they're never going to get that hundred percent. Right. Right. So I don't, I don't torture them with too many of those, but I'll do one or two. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that forces them to actually know that mm-hmm. ra- rather than, because most uh, most students would rather just like ah I take it once and I got a eighty percent good enough yeah. right and like no yeah you 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 need to know a little bit very well rather than a whole lot of stuff mm-hmm. familiar with it Excellent. and so that's my small way of uh, I guess living with myself for having to do online learning because I never been a fan of it <laughs> so training uh, I'm going to go back to the old uh, phrase biofeedback. <clears throat> which really, I mean, Skinner was in a sense doing biofeedback. And then we got into our chairs where we would look at a screen and have uh, uh, a way to change our heart rate or, or sometimes even our blood pressure and various uh, physical things by thinking differently or 
monitoring. And so that gets expanded. And, and I'm going to pick on you because you have taken training personally to a peak that's required biofeedback in the process. Uh, you are an, what, a world champion rower. Is that correct? I have, yes, I have a current world record and another current American record in rowing. Yes, it's, it's on the machines on, you know, um, not on the water, it's harder yeah. to measure, but, uh, um, but it's on the concept to, you know, rowing machines and they have world records and world championships and stuff like that. Yeah. And so you have to have a very intense regimen that involves a biofeedback. I mean, you need to know how you're doing all the time, all the time. And you're, right. and, and not just, not just, uh, on the workout I did, but I have to have the feedback in the actual workout. Uh-huh, right, so instant. During, yeah, the workout. So, um, so for example, when I when I broke my world record for the first time, I, I re-broke it a year later, uh, 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 yeah, a year later. But when I did it the first time, the way I ended up doing it was, um, well, to give a slight bit of context here, I was trying to, I had tried several times to make the world championships there's a certain cutoff time and they will fly you to the world championships um, to compete in that. And so my goal was to get into the world championships in, in rowing and uh, in online rowing or not online in uh, um, stationary, but yeah. Roll. Yes. The stationary not, not on the water. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I went to uh, when I actually moved, uh, it's been 13 years I've been at uh, Lincoln now. So um but when we first moved to central Missouri, I found out that one of the satellite races as a qualifier for the world championships was in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I would give another go at that. And uh, I had come up three seconds short in a six and a half minute race previously, like a few years before that. And so I never was quite able to get it. Well, I can't Well, I'll give it another shot. So I trained up and went to this race in St. Louis. And uh, it was at the end of end of January, about February 1st, February 1st of that year. And, uh, I was, I was once again, I was short by 11 seconds in a six and a half minute race. And uh, I didn't make the cutoff time. And well, they had this fun race right afterwards. I mean, literally within a half an hour, cause I'm going to get into the older category now. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, the older people go a little bit later. Well, at the end of the whole day, they had a fun race that your kids could do it. And everybody else it was a 500 meter shorter race well i did that one and i ended up having the fastest time in the world up to that point that year which is only end of january but but still in that shorter race i was way more competitive than i was in the longer 2000 meters so i decided that i would train specifically for that 500 meters um and i did it from well from about the first of february until august when i gave my uh, when i broke the world record um, and what happened was when I, when I got to the right race, I'm more of a sprinter than a distance person is what it comes okay. down to. When I got into the right race and I was training the right way, the times just started dropping mm -hmm. and, uh, how they dropped was with the specific feedback you're talking about. I do a, one of my training workouts is what's called a Tabata protocol. Um, you may have heard of something called high intensity interval training. Yes. 
Um, and, and, and that's all the big stuff in the fitness world. I get a little annoyed because that comes from the, from the original Tabata protocol, um, which was uh, Japanese speed skaters. Um, the guy's name was Tabata, apparently, right? Who mm-hmm. created this, a, a scientist. Um, and the gist of it was it maxed out your, all your energy systems at the same time. Um, it's a four minute protocol. You do, you do uh, um, 20 seconds of basically as hard as you can go. 10 seconds of rest, 20 seconds hard, 10 seconds rest. You do that for four minutes, eight cycles. And then it's a recipe for puking at the end of it is what it is. Um, and, uh, and so what I like about the rowing machine is that monitor gives you feedback, not only on your, how many Watts you're pulling on each 20 second interval, but then it'll record your average Watts and you can figure out the whole thing with the overall average Watts for the four minutes, et cetera. So my goal with the feedback was to um, was to uh, um, get my Tabata protocol, the, the average watts for that four minutes, to be more than 500 watts for the for the for the whole four minutes average. And uh, so I, you know, I was started at night, I was maybe 430, and I worked through that whole spring and summer until I finally, when I hit 500 watts, <clears throat> then I knew I was ready to give it a shot for the world record. Oh. And so I wasn't going to do that until I hit that target. So every time I did that, I know, you know, I got 495 Watts this last time and I got to get those last three, I got to stay over 500 to get that, to get that in. Mm-hmm. And so that, that feedback is what allowed me to do it. Now, interestingly, at the end of this, I know we're kind of running short on time here, the end of that. Um, so I got in the world record and I thought, well, I'm going to lower my world record. Well, I sold my, I sold my rowing machine um, to my brother. And then I was going to buy a new one at at the championships that next year, which is only about four months away. But my idea was to train to lower my world record at the actual event in St. Louis. Long story short, the gym that I worked at had a a concept two rower, but the monitor was busted. So I was doing all the same workouts, trying as hard as I could, but I didn't have the specific feedback. And then I fell short you know, I was, I was as well-trained if not better, but I fell short because I didn't have that specific feedback oh. uh, to show me that. So seeing the numbers, getting the feedback and knowing I'm trying to get 500 Watts this time mm-hmm. is the way to, is the way to make improvements. Yeah. So that's uh, wonderful. If our, if our goal is some kind of a physical behavior that can be so easily measured, uh, most of our behaviors, though, are controlled by our subconscious habits, <laughs> and we don't uh, we don't notice the feedback. We don't notice that either our body or our feelings or our energy levels are are trying to give us a little feedback along the way, or our wife or our you know people are giving us feedback, but. How do we improve noticing feedback that can help us change our thinking? Well, um, I mean, I, I hate to use a fake it till you make it phrase, but it does kind of apply here. If you're, if there's some behavior you're doing, there's a way to measure it, right? If you're wanting to be a better husband, there are behaviors that you're doing that are better and more desirable and less desirable behaviors. So you can, you can make a goal to make sure you 
kiss your wife before you go to bed at night or whatever, right? There is always a behavior that goes along with it. Um, because I mean, nobody cares if you're maybe inside of you, you do care, but your attitudes and your things like that, um, what other, what other people see is the outward behavior that comes as a result. So if you change that behavior, you know, to be a more pleasant person, for example, people will start treating you nicer (laughs) and, and then you will, and then, and then as they're treating you nicer, then you're going to be more willing to be a pleasant person. And so you're going to get that feedback there. And you can specifically write that down and have the goal that I'm going to make sure that I kiss my wife for it. I'm going to make sure that I say good morning when I walk into work. And, and so you can measure those things. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is it's important to know what we want or what our Absolutely. goal is. If you don't, I mean, if you have, if you don't know where you're going, you're probably going to end up there. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, if, if you're going nowhere in particular, that's where you're going to end up. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, there's no guarantee if you set a goal that you're going to reach it. But if you don't get it, set a goal, I guarantee you won't reach it. Yeah. So you got to have some direction. Otherwise, you're just floundering. And if you don't have a direction, you're basically doing what everybody else wants you to do. And that's not a way to live either. So what are you teaching next semester? I have personal adjustment, which I taught this semester, and uh, sports psychology, oh, and advanced general psychology, a couple sections of that. That's our first majors course. So kind of how to think scientifically. So those are the ones I'm teaching. Yeah. So Gary Holman, teacher down at uh, Lincoln University of Missouri, uh, Jeff City. Uh, you live, though, in, in Columbia or you live in Jeff City? Live in Columbia. Yes. Live in Columbia. Yeah. Well, that's where we're broadcasting from. Uh, K-O-P-N, uh, Community Radio. Any parting words for our listeners, Gary? You know, I, I hope I've, uh, you know, shared some ideas that um, have come up and I guess the one thing to leave with, if I could come up with one thing, is uh, um, the idea that, you know, we all think through filters and questioning our own filters is is one of the best things that we can do. So that's, I guess, if I would have one parting thing, that would be it, is question your own viewpoints um, because you're not always right. I, you know, I'm not always right. and But realizing that we have, we're all coming through our own filters is a good start to help us to kind of come together you know, Wonderful. with a consensus and ideas. Yeah. Friends, remember wherever you are, that is your world. Uh, please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care, be safe and talk to you soon.